Uh, let's pray. Father, thank you again for this day that you have um, granted us. Again, it's, it's, it's a day that we don't deserve, and we are grateful for it. For this time and this place that you allow us to gather together, Father, I pray that above all else today that you would be, you would be glorified. That you would, in fact, glorify yourself in us and through us uh, as, as, we, as, as I preach your word and as we hear your word proclaimed. Lord, we pray that you would continue to speak to us through your word. You would continue to sanctify us, Jesus, that we would know you more, that we would, we would love you more. And as we, as, we, as we know and love you more, that we would really hate our sin more. And as we, as we cling more and more to you, we would continue to let go more and more of this world and the stuff of this world. We pray that you would also continue to glorify yourself in and through our fellowship, even after the service today, as we get some time to, to fellowship with one another. I pray that just our, our, our conversations would be glorifying and honoring to you, and that you would, you would use that just to continue um, to unify us as a church. And Jesus, we love you and we praise you and we ask these things in your name for your sake. Amen. We are um, going to finish 3rd John today. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to 3rd John verse verse 11. And we're going to be going through verse 11 um, through the end. A little bit, I say different. I, I, to me, it's a little bit different the sermon today. Um, but I think it'll be, I think it'll be appropriate. Um, I titled, I didn't have time for an outline, so I'll go ahead and just give you my rough outline real quick. It's, it's pretty simple. I titled this sermon Naming Names because in, in this section of the, the letter, John, John names names and he names two names. And, and the first one is, is somewhat in a confrontational way, calling someone out, um, and and the second name that he names, he, he is commending someone. He's, he's praising someone. And so we're going we're gonna to consider that today, naming names. And we're going to consider the names that John names and, and really what we do with that, how, how we can draw some sort of pra- practical application out of this today. And so, again, I, I think it's timely, and I, I think you'll see that as well. Let me go ahead and read now um, Third John, verses 9 through um, 15. I've written something to the church. But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who wants to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone. And from the truth itself, we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is, is true. I had much to write you. And this is, this is I'm actually going to end. I'm, I'm going to read the conclusion of this letter. I'm actually going to begin with the ending. I'm just going to say something briefly about the conclusion. We're not going to spend a lot of time there because it's pretty much the same that we discussed at the end of, of Second John. But it says, I had much to write you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. And so John ends this letter. And again, just 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 something, just briefly. And, and again, we looked at this with Second John. Um, you know, John 
acknowledged one, of course, his desire to, to be with them, them being who the church. I mean, we know that he wrote this letter to Gaius, right? Gaius on behalf of the church. And we also understand that that these letters were written, known or knowing, or he wrote this letter, that it was going to be passed around the church and be shared, right? So it was a personal letter, yes, but it was a public letter as, as well. And so again, John just expresses his desire to be with them personally, which I think uh, it's a pastoral desire. I think it's a great pastoral desire to, to, to worship with the church, right? To want to be physically with the church. This letter doesn't suffice. The phone call doesn't suffice. I, I want to be with you in person. And so we can worship, we can talk, we can fellowship, we can, we can deal with whatever aspects of life we, we have to deal with. But not only is it a pastoral desire, there should be a, 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 a desire for every believer, that we should desire the same level of fellowship, level of, of interaction. And again, that was how John ended um, uh, the last letter he wrote. I said the last one. We don't know what order, but that's how he ended Second John, or what we call Second John. And he ends Third John in the exact same way. And so we see that the desire of his heart is consistent and should be the desire of our hearts as, as well. Okay. First point we're going to consider in this sermon is, is confrontation. John calls someone out in a confrontational way. And we see that in verses, verses 9, 9 through 10. I, I want to consider what, I want you to consider, uh, I hope you've been considering it, what I believe is one of many recurring themes. I say many, one of many recurring themes in John's letters. Right? And that's dealing with false teachers. Right? Recognizing them. Okay? And we recognize them for the purpose of, of separating from them, for the purpose of avoiding them. And so I think this is a fairly consistent theme that we've seen in 1 John, 2 John, and here in 3 John. And so I just want to go back and look at a few of these passages from, from 1 and 2 uh, John um, just to uh, solidify in our minds that this is a, a recurring thing. This is something that John has been dealing with in, in the first century church, right? And the reality is this is something that every church until Christ's return is going to have to deal with. Right? It's false teachers and their false teachings. So let's go back to uh, 1 John. So if you were to flip back to 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter 2 verses um, 18 through 27. In 1 John 22, starting in 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out. That it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are 
trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So again, he warns the church here in 1 John that, that not, not simply is it the Antichrist coming, but, but there are many Antichrists, right? That is false teachers, right? Deceivers, okay? And again, we see this continue. Let's go to... Um, Let's go to, uh, first, actually back to First John. I had this out of order. We'll look at verses 1 through 6. I'm sorry. First John 4, 1 through 6. First John 4, 1 through 6. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Again, if you recall when we went through this, he's not talking about like, ooh, spirits. He's talking about individuals, right? Spirits, right? Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets, so spirit, false prophet. We know he's talking about people when he says spirits. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Again, just remember before we look at the next, uh, the next passage in 2 John, remember as, as John's addressing these, these false teachers, right, he's, he's consistently going back to this issue of, of false doctrine concerning the, the nature of Christ. Okay? And so he might, he might specifically say something, well, you know, if they don't confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, right? So we can take one specific heresy concerning the nature of Christ's coming. Well, he, he didn't come in the flesh. He only appeared. Remember, we talked about this several, several weeks back. He only appeared to have come in the flesh, right? Almost like an apparition. He was actually just spirit, but he appeared to be in the flesh, right? John says, of course, that's, that's heresy. And whoever says that is not from God, but is in fact uh, uh, from Antichrist, right? Not a believer, but a false teacher, false prophet. Uh, um, uh, maybe a, a false convert as well, even if they're not a teacher or a preacher, just a, a believer, if you will, right? But again, we applied this to greater doctrine, right? Anyone who comes holding false doctrine concerning Christ, right, is not from God, does not belong to God, is not a believer. Okay, Second John. So Second John, um, uh, verses seven through eleven. Starting in verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. And again, we apply that to any false 
doctrine concerning the nature of Christ, really any essential doctrine, right? We can, we can apply that to any, any, anyone who comes preaching, right, a false essential doctrine, right, a heresy concerning essential doctrine, right, according to John, is a deceiver, and he says the Antichrist, right, small, small a Antichrist, okay? Watch yourselves, he says, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. So he kind of even expands that doctrinally. The one who doesn't abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Right? Remember this. For whoever greets him takes part in his wickedness. And I want you to keep that in mind because we're going to look at a practical example uh, of that here uh, in, in a couple minutes, okay? And so here we have from 1 John and 2 John, we've got three, again, three different scenarios or three different instances, that is, where John addresses this idea of false teachers, right? Uh, deceivers, um, again, and he calls them antichrists. They are, are actively... Uh, warring against Christ, enemies of, of Christ. So again, we do have this as a, a recurring theme in John's letter. And then here in, in 2 John, sorry, here in 3 John, verse 7, he kind of addresses it again. Now, concerning, concerning um, Diotrephes, I had to stop and think of his name. Concerning Diotrephes, I think he takes it to the logical conclusion, okay? He, he addresses 1 John, Two cases of, of, you know, be on the lookout for deceivers, false teachers, false converts, false whatever, okay? Addresses it again in Second John, and then bringing it to its logical conclusion in Third John, he actually calls someone out specifically, okay? Names someone's name. And, 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 in, this instance of, and in this instance of Diotrephes, he's not even accusing him of heresy, right? and we'll get to that momentarily. But again, John's bringing it, to the logical conclusion. He says, I've written something to the church. Okay, so John wrote a letter. We don't know anything about it, right? It it, it predated this letter. That's all we know. He wrote it to this church who evidently Diotrephes was the the pastor of the church. Okay, so he says, "I've, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing talking wicked nonsense against us. Not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who wants to and puts them out of the church. So John, right, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, okay, his like right-hand man, John, right, um, writes this letter to the church. And from what we can gather from this, the, the, the pastor, we'll use that term loosely there, diatrophies, um, probably doesn't even even uh, deliver or present that letter to the church, but in fact rejects um, John's John's authority. So what John's doing is he's writing this other letter to Gaius. Remember, going back to the to, to, to third John, he's writing this other letter um, to Gaius. Probably in part because the first letter he wrote to that church didn't make it to the church because Diotrephes wouldn't deliver it. So instead, he writes this letter to another member of the church, Gaius, right, and, and brings this as well as other things up, in part exposing Diotrephes, right? 
But he calls Diotrephes out and he says, if I come in person, we're going to deal with it. And we're going we're to talk about this more. Now, Diotrephes sins. Again, I said moments ago that, that John's not addressing heresy. Now, now maybe, maybe he did hold to heretical beliefs. I don't know. He's not addressing heresy in this letter. It's actually uh, a heresy would even be worse, I think. You know, if, if John was saying, hey, Diotrephes is denying that Jesus claimed in the flesh, right? I think that would be even worse than saying Diotrephes is rejecting our or my apostolic authority. Now, now, here's the thing. John being an apostle, not just, pa- I mean, he was Pastor John, right? And he was a disciple, right? But he wasn't just a pastor and he wasn't just a disciple. He was, he was an apostle, one of 12, specifically sent out by Christ with, with an authority that only the apostles had. And, and since, I mean, you have Jesus, right? And then you've got the 12, and then you've got everyone else, right? And so the apostles had a specific and special authority from Christ. And by Diotrephes rejecting John's authority, he was ultimately rejecting Christ's authority. So John's calling him out for rejecting ultimately Christ's authority. He's calling him out for being selfish, for being self-centered, for being self-seeking. Now, if Diotrephes was a believer, now I don't believe he was, and and, and I think you'll see why here uh, once we get to verse 11. But if he was a believer, the big if, but if he was a believer, he was clearly disqualified from pastoral ministry on the basis that he rejected, right, ultimately Christ's authority and that he was selfish, self-centered, and self-seeking. Now, John calling him out in this letter, okay, um, we know that it was a, like I said, it was a private letter to Gaius, but it was a public letter because, again, these letters were written and, and they were shared. And, and John would have written this letter with the intention that, that Gaius would have shared this letter to others in, in the church, making his intentions known. So really, this was a public calling out of, of Diotrephes. Okay, it wasn't just simply a private conversation. Hey, come over here. Can I, can I talk to you about something real quick? You know, this guy's been doing this, and I just, I just want to make it to you. No, it was, a, it was. A, understand, it was very much a public calling out. And in part, we know that it's a public calling out because, well, it's in the Bible, right? It's not like it was written in a private letter that nobody has ever seen or nobody has ever known, right? So, John, understand, John was publicly calling Gaius out for his, we'll say, sin, but for what he was, um, for what he was doing. Now. Typically when this happens, and I talk about us practically now, right? Um, there will be those who protest or those who object to, to publicly calling out other individuals. Maybe you've experienced this, maybe not. Maybe I'm just on the wrong end or the right end, I don't know, of, of these type of conversations all the time. But I've experienced this, where you specifically call someone out um, for, for their actions, or in the diatrophy's case, it was, this was his actions, or maybe you call someone out for their beliefs, right? And let's talk about this in the context of someone that's not in our, our local fellowship, right? Not in this, this church, right? Maybe, maybe someone that's, that's well-known across the nation, okay? Uh, um, claiming to be a believer or, or, or whatever the case might be. And, and you call them out and you say, hey, listen, this person said this or this person believes this and this is, this is wrong. You're going to have people that object to that. 
right? I've experienced people saying to me personally, hey, you know, why can't we just as Christians get along? I mean, this is just terrible. I mean, here you are arguing with another believer, and in the end, we're all going to heaven, and you're just making us look bad in front of unbelievers. Uh, you know, we, we should just get along and just, you know, let them believe what they want to believe, right? You believe what you want to believe, and in the end, we'll all party in heaven. I mean, this is kind of one of the objections. Okay, so my response is what? We shouldn't confront sin, and we shouldn't confront error. Okay, let's consider, um, let's consider uh, uh, what Paul told Titus and Timothy and even addressed in Romans. Actually, let's go to Romans first. Let's look at Romans 16, 17, and 18. Romans chapter 16. Verse 17, Paul says, I I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Well, so Paul gives us a command, right? I mean, he gave it to the, the, the first century Roman church, but he gave it to us. God's given it to us through him, right? to watch out for those who would, would deceive, right? Those who would divide, those who teach contrary to, to sound doctrine or biblical doctrine. He says out to watch, he says to watch out for them. Well, for the purpose of what? Not just simply guarding ourselves individually for that. It'd be like me telling my son, listen, when you cross the street, I want you to watch out for a, a, a car, right? Because I don't want you to get hit by that car, all right? They're, they're dangerous. They don't look for little kids. People speed down this road. So, so when this car, you know, you, you watch out for them, okay? And if you're, if you're going to cross the street, if there's a car coming, stop. Let the car pass. And he's like, okay, Dad, I got it. And so he goes to cross the street, and he's, he's, he's with his little brother, all right? And so Hunter does what he's supposed to do, or whichever son is, I'm, I don't know why I'm thinking about him, but he does what he's supposed to do, right? They get to the edge of the street. He looks. There's a car coming, and Titus just walks out in the street, and Pam gets creamed. And the response of the other son is, well, I just did what you told me. I mean, I watched out, and there was, there was one coming, and you said, you said guard myself against it, so I guarded myself against it. The obvious conclusion is, is we're going we're gonna to watch out for danger, right? And when we recognize danger, we're going to warn those around us as well of that danger, Right? Paul wasn't telling the church this just for their individual benefit, but for the church's benefit as a whole, that we would, yes, watch out individually for these false teachers, but that we would what? We would warn one another of these false teachers as well. And we see this confirmed in his letters to Titus and his letters to Timothy. Let's look at Titus 1.9. Now, when we consider these commands that, that Paul, there are commands, instruction, whatever you want to call it, when we consider what he's given to, to, to young Pastor Titus and young Pastor Timothy, right? Again, Titus and Timothy as pastors, just as Randy and I or any other pastors, we're, we're to set examples, right? We're, we're to act and to do that you would act and do in, in the same manner. So, so in, in the positive things that we do and the right things that we do, right? And we see this with this. So Titus 1.9, uh, Paul says, Concerning the pastor, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and to what? Rebuke those who contradict it. Again, it's just not the pastor's 
responsibility or a teacher's responsibility to hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught, right? As a believer, you're to do the same thing, right? The pastor is just to, 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 to lead, uh, set an example in that regard, right? The same as giving instruction and sound doctrine and rebuking those who contradict, uh, contradict it. As, as a believer, okay, I would expect that if you're fellowshipping with another group from this church and you're out having lunch or you're doing whatever, or you're visiting over there, they're visiting over here, whatever the case is, and, and someone brings up some doctrine that's, that's unbiblical, well, I expect you to address that. Say, oh, wait, wait a minute, right? You know, you don't... You don't have to be baptized to be saved, right? I mean, that just popped in my mind, baptismal regeneration, right? There are those that would say that if you're not baptized, you're not going to heaven. And so as soon as you, 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 you ask Jesus into your heart, we'll use their terminology, you better go get baptized before you get hit by a car because if you're on your way to the, to the lake to get baptized and you get creamed, then I don't know, you might not make it, right? I mean, listen, if someone in your sphere of influence uh, proclaiming to be a believer brings that up, I, I expect you to say, oh, wait a minute, I, I, don't, I don't think that's right. Let's, let's go to the Word and see what the Bible says, because I, I think that's wrong. I think that's, that's, that's heresy, right? So, so you're expected to do that. The pastor is just to lead the way in, in this regard, right, as, as uh, uh, commanded by Scripture. And again, we see this in Second uh, Timothy as well. So let's go to Second Timothy um, 4. So Second Timothy 4, 2. Again, says to the pastor. Actually, I'll read one and two. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom, what? To preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Again, this, this command, right, transcends pastoral responsibility, right? And, and as, as believers in general, we have, we have these same expectations. We, we should be ready to preach the word. Now, maybe not in the same context as the pastor does from, from the pulpit, right? Our, our neighbor, the first time we met them, she was talking or we were talking and she kind of scared me because uh, Jennifer might have said something about, um, you know, me uh, pastoring down here and, and preaching or whatever. And she, anyway, she looked at me and she said, she said, I preach too. And I was like, uh-oh, we might have bought the wrong land, right? And I was like, really? I'm like, tell me about that. I'm getting scared, right? I'm like, oh no. And she's like, yeah, I mean, anytime someone will let me share the gospel with them, I'll preach it to them. I'm in Walmart, and someone's waiting next to me, and I'll preach the word to them, you know. And if I'm at the doctor's office and they'll listen, I'll preach the word to them. I'm like, all right, I'll buy that. I'm, I'm okay with that, right? And so, so in the same sense, right, this command that Paul is giving Timothy, that's for all of us, is to preach the word, right? Be ready in season and out of season. That's, that's for all of us. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and, and teaching. We, we do that. We do that as believers as we, as we live with one another, right, in this, this, this church body, okay? So that's, that's for all of us, right? So there are those who would say, oh, no, no, we shouldn't, you know, let's just, let's just get along as Christians. Let's not, you know, you shouldn't be saying that what he's saying or doing is wrong. We just, it, it looks bad, and we're all going to heaven anyway, so let's just, let's just get along, right? Again, we see here in Scripture that as believers, right, we're, we're commanded, we're commanded to do this, right? But of course, as Timothy said to Paul, and I'll just remind you and remind myself, well, to do it with complete, what, patience and teaching. We do it with grace and we do it with, with mercy, right? Ultimately out of a love for Christ, but also out of care and concern for those who were, were correcting, right? Or those who were seeking to protect as we point out, as we point out error. So then there are those who are going to say, who, who are going to object and say, this is a Matthew 18 issue, right? Uh-oh. 
you shouldn't call them out, but this, this is a Matthew chapter 18 issue, right? It's not always, I'm going to say this, it's not always a Matthew chapter 18 issue. So a couple months back, I'm, I'm going to give you kind of a, a practical uh, example of, of this. A couple months ago, I posted something, you know, I have this love-hate relationship with, uh, with Facebook. Anyway, I posted something, I posted a, a quote on Facebook by Carl Truman. Um, Carl Truman said, public statements don't require private contact before public critique, right? Which I wholeheartedly believe. If someone's going to say something publicly, you know, on the evening news, right? I believe that, that rightfully opens that up or whatever the case might be. Even if it's a pastor posting a sermon on the internet for the world to, to, to see, to enjoy, to, to whatever, right? I believe you open yourself up to, to public, public critique. So I post this and a friend of mine who, who I, I, I love dearly, responds and he says, well, unless you value the relationship. And then he responds right again and says, oh, and then there's the whole messy thing Jesus said in Matthew 18. Now, I'm not going to give you my response to the whole Matthew 18 thing, right? But I gave him this very long response about how Matthew 18 um, doesn't always apply. And it doesn't always apply. There are going to be some circumstances where the person that you're naming, that you're calling out, listen, he or she is not in your, your sphere of influence, they don't know you from Adam. They might live on the other side of, of the country. But if, if what they're saying and what they're doing is destructive, if it's false, if it's harmful, within your sphere of influence, people you know, care about, and love, you have an obligation to point, to point that out. I mean, you're calling them out, but in this case, not for the benefit of them because they don't know you, and, and, and if you wrote them a letter or called them, they would never answer or whatever. You're calling them out for the benefit, for the protection, for the care of, of those that you, you love, right? So in that regard, Matthew 18 doesn't apply. Matthew 18 is within the local church context anyway. And so when we're dealing with someone outside the local church context, Matthew 18 does not apply. And then there are other circumstances that Matthew 18 doesn't apply either. And I gave him one in this example, and it had to do with um, had to do with what happens when when infants die. You know, um, I believe that all babies that die go to heaven, and and I can defend that. I'm not going to this morning, but I can defend that based on what I know of the nature of God, right? And and I think that it's it's that's clear in Scripture. That's fine. Okay, there there are those solid believers that don't believe that. And if we're discussing that, I'm okay with talking about those believers that don't believe that, not calling them out. I mean, R.C. Sproul Jr. is one of them, right? And I disagree with him. I, I think he's wrong. But that's not a Matthew 18 issue. That's two believers disagreeing on, on a non-essential doctrine. And so I think in that scenario, it's okay to name names as well. Again, we have to do it with grace, and we have to do it with mercy, and we have to do it with love. But again, a couple scenarios, one might be a sin issue scenario where Matthew 18 doesn't apply because they don't know me. I don't know them other than what I've read about them on the internet or I've, I've watched their videos or listened to their sermons or whatever. So they're outside of this, this local body, but they have influence maybe coming into it via their books and other things, right? And the other thing is it might not be a, it might not be a sin issue. And if I don't know them and it's not a sin issue, same thing as the first one. Absolutely, I can, I can name names, right? Again, um, now, concerning Diotrephes, we don't know if John ever spoke to him, like after he wrote this letter. We, we, we just don't know. We don't know how, now, know how it uh, was addressed beyond this. We don't know that, I mean, I don't even know what John's level of knowledge, like was John like, a, a, I mean, were they friends? 
did they did they just know each other by name? Did they? We don't know. We don't know what their relationship is. And 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 the reality is, is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what their relationship was. It doesn't matter what what it became. It doesn't matter if he ever confronted him. According to Matthew 18, I think in that case might it have been appropriate because he was an apostle and the other. Maybe we don't know. But the point is within this text, right? Is John here? He was calling this man out by by name, right? Ultimately, we know for the sake of God's glory, as he, John, sought to protect the church from this man. Again, we don't know that he was proclaiming any false doctrine, but he was denying the authority of Christ. He was putting himself first. He was putting people out of the church for caring for other believers, right? He was, he was harming the church. So John was calling him out for the sake of protecting the church. Again, John, what he was doing in this was fulfilling his, not just apostolic duty, but he was fulfilling his, his pastoral duty. First Peter 5, 5 um, 1 through 4. Peter says, So I exalt the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not compulsion, but willingly, not under compulsion, but willingly, as, as, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Right? And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves all of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. John, John was being obedient for this as he was caring for Christ's flock, as he was shepherding the flock. Now, he wasn't the local pastor over that church, but he was an apostle. And so he did have apostolic authority over that church. And he was caring for him as was his duty, right? And as pastors from time to time, we'll, we'll name names, right? We'll bring up issues. We'll bring up doctrines that people are peddling that are false, that are, are, are harmful to the church. Again, they're fulfilling their duty to what? To protect the church. I want to give you a, a, a practical, so, so today, okay? I want to give you a practical example of this, right? Of, of when it would be necessary to name a name. So I'm going to name a name. How about that? Um, now, it's not always. Listen, if there's some, some false doctrine, some false uh, baptismal regeneration, there's no, no need for me to tell you that, hey, listen, Joe Blow is peddling baptismal regeneration. And, and so I'm going to call him out by name. One, I don't know anybody locally that is or anyone that has any influence over this church that is peddling baptismal regeneration. Now, I do know some. I know some well-known people that most of us in here know that, that, that most likely holds the baptismal regeneration, but they don't have any spiritual sway or influence or spiritual you know, authority over, over any of us or anyone that I know. And so because of that, I don't, I don't feel it's necessary to, to, necess- to, to, to name their names. Okay? And so I'm not going to. Right? I might just address the doctrine. Okay? But, but when, when it becomes necessary to name a name, maybe it's someone that there are many in this church or our Christian community here in town that really have in the past or currently revered this individual. Think highly of them spiritually, right? And then if they start pushing some unbiblical doctrine, 
then absolutely, I think it's necessary to name a name to say, hey, listen, this, is, this doctrine is wrong or what they're saying or what they're doing is wrong. And I'm going to name their name because you know what? You need to watch out, not just for that doctrine, but you need to watch out for this person. I think they're outside of the camp, right? I, I think that, that you need to burn their books and, and turn in their tapes, okay? And so, so I do think that, that there's you know, a time when you can just talk about the issue. I think there's times when it's necessary to name names. So what I want to do first is I want to read, uh, I want to read something to you. I'm going to read two opposing views, um, uh, if you will. Um, the first one is from Martin Luther. And this is, uh, we understand Martin Luther, right? I mean, here he was, um, I mean, he was a reformed, did he ever make it to full priest? Was he like a full, I don't know how that works with the Catholic Church or whatever, but he was a reformed Catholic, right? I mean, in the in the truest sense of the word, I guess. But I want to read to you, uh, uh, um, uh, 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 not really a statement, but just uh, uh, several paragraphs from Martin Luther concerning his view of the Catholic Church. Okay, and we know that he would have had an intimate understanding of of the Catholic Church. Okay, so you know we could we could spend a whole lesson on on Catholicism. I'm not going to do that. If you want to talk more about it sometime, let's. But instead, I'm just going to read to you. Um, Martin Luther's view of the Catholic Church, right? the office of the Pope. I'll tell you my quick, brief views of it, and then I'm going to read you some other statements about the Catholic Church. So this is Martin Luther. What is the whole papacy but a beautiful false front and deceptively glittering holiness under which the wretched devil lies in hiding? The devil always desires to imitate God in this way. He cannot bear to observe God speaking. If he cannot prevent it or hinder God's word by force, he opposes it with a semblance of piety, takes the very words of God, the very words God had spoken, and, and so twists them as to peddle his lies and poison under their name. Since the papal church not only neglects the command of Christ, but even compels the people to ignore it and to act against it, it is certain that it is not, Christ, that it is not Christ's church, but the synagogue of Satan, which prescribes sin and prohibits righteousness. It clearly and indisputably follows that it must be the abomination of Antichrist and the furious harlot of the devil. Let him who does not want to be lost and go to the devil be on his guard with all diligence and earnestness against the papacy and its doctrine, and let him never again accept even the most insignificant and smallest part of the papacy's teaching, no matter what it may cost him. Let him flee from the papacy and its following as from the devil incarnate himself, and let him by no means be silenced by the sweet, slippery words of hypocrites or be persuaded that yielding and conceding something for the sake of peace is a matter of little consequence and that the bond of love should not be disreputed for the sake of something trifling. Come now, there is assuredly no joking in this matter. Eternal salvation and eternal damnation are involved. Can anything more horrible be said than that the kingdom of the papists is the kingdom of those who spit at Christ, the Son of God, and crucify him anew? For they do crucify Christ in themselves, in the church, and in the hearts of the faithful. Therefore, let everyone who is honestly given to piety flee out of this Babylon as quickly as possible. For so great are its impurity and its abomination that no one can express them in words, that they can be discerned only by eyes that are spiritual." He says, my dear Pope, I will kiss your feet and acknowledge you as supreme bishop if you will worship my Christ and grant that through his death and resurrection, not through keeping your traditions, we have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. If you will yield on this point, 
I shall not take away your crown and power. If not, I shall constantly cry out that you are the Antichrist, and I shall testify that your whole cult and religion are only a denial of God, but also the height of blasphemy against God and idolatry. What kind of church is the Pope's cry? I'm sorry, what kind of church is the Pope's church? It is an uncertain, vacillating, and tottering church. Indeed, it is a deceitful, lying church, doubtful and unbelieving, without God's word. For the Pope, with his wrong keys, teaches his church to doubt and to be uncertain. If it is a uh, uh, vacillating church, then it is not the church of faith. For the latter is founded upon a rock, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. If it is not the church of faith, then it is not the Christian church, but it must be an unchristian, anti-Christian, and faithless church, which destroys the ruins, the real holy Christian church. And this is to be noted carefully so that we can treat with contempt the filthy, foolish twaddle that the popes present in their decrees about the Roman church, that is, about their devil's synagogue, which separates itself from common Christendom and spiritual edifice built upon this stone, and instead invents for itself a fleshly, worldly, worthless, lying, blasphemous, idolatrous authority over all of Christendom. One of these two things might be true. If the Roman church is not built on this rock along with the other churches, then it is the devil's church. But if it is built along with all the other churches on this rock, then it cannot be lord or head over the other churches. For Christ the cornerstone knows nothing of two unequal churches, but only of one church alone, just as the children's faith, that is the faith of all the Christendom says, I believe in one holy Christian church, and does not say, I believe in one holy Catholic or Roman Catholic church. The Roman church is and should be one portion or member of the holy Christian church, not the head which befits solely Christ, the cornerstone. If not, it is not a Christian, but an unchristian, an anti-Christian church. This is a papal school of scoundrels. These arrogant and unlearned papists can't govern the church because they write nothing, they read nothing, but firmly saddled in the pride of possession, they cry out that the decrees of the fathers are not to be questioned and decisions made are not to be disputed. Otherwise, one would have to dance the tune of every little brother. For this reason, the Pope, possessed by demons, defends his tyranny with the canon Sci Papa. This canon states clearly, if the Pope should lead the whole world into the control of hell, he is nevertheless not to be contradicted. It's a terrible thing that on account of the authority of this man, we must lose our souls, which Christ redeemed with his precious blood. Christ says, I will not cast out anybody who comes to me. On the other hand, the Pope says, as I will it, so I command it. You must perish rather than resist me. Therefore, the Pope, whom our princes adore, is full of devils. He must be examined by the word and by prayer. Rather harsh words by Martin Luther concerning the, the Roman Catholic Church. Listen, the, the Roman Catholic Church as an institution is, um, and Roman Catholicism as, as a religion is a cult, as, as is Mormonism, and as is um, uh, Jehovah's Witness. Now, I, and I'll say this, it doesn't mean that there aren't people that identify themselves as, as Catholics that, that are not believers. No, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. I don't know their hearts. Okay? And I know that there are people. I, I know I have, I have a friend that attends a Catholic church that I believe he's a believer. I don't have any idea what he's doing there, but I do believe that he is a believer. right? Um, um, but nonetheless, this, this religion is not a Christian religion, okay? but, it is, but it is a cult. 
And I'll just let Martin Luther, again, don't take my words for it. If you want, you can take his words for it. But we can at some point, if you want, we can examine what they teach and what they believe, right, um, uh, against what scripture, what scripture says. Okay, now that being said, what does this have to do with naming names, right? I'm going to read two quotes for you concerning the Catholic Church or the Roman Catholic Church. We rejoice that the Holy Father has captured the world's attention and so much goodwill for the Christian faith. You have written so powerfully, Holy Father, of the importance of a new evangelization within the church. An evangelizing community gets involved by word and deed in people's daily lives. It bridges distances. It is willing to abase itself if necessary, and it embraces human life, touching the suffering flesh of Christ and others. Quote two. We have far more in common than what divides us. We believe in the Trinity. We believe in the Bible. We believe in the resurrection. We believe that salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. These are the big issues. But the most important thing is that you love Jesus. These quotes concerning the Roman Catholic Church are from Rick Warren from about three weeks ago. Okay. This is why it concerns me. Let me, let me I'm going to read one other thing to you. If I can find, excuse me, if I can find where I put it. So, Mr. Warren makes these quotes concerning the Catholic Church. And then like two nights later on Facebook, a, a, a friend of mine who still attends the church that my wife and I used to attend, who absolutely the church, Rick Warren, I mean, you can't walk in and they're, it's, it's a purpose-driven church if you're familiar with Rick Warren. Everything Rick Warren, right? And so here's what, what this individual posts. Good stuff right here. I've never been to heaven, but I'm quite certain there will be no denominations when we get there. And then she says to her husband, I thought you'd be interested to see the video clip at the end of the article, which was a video clip of basically these quotes, right? And if you read the comments and stuff, they're all just thrilled and excited and praising the inclusiveness of, of, of all of this, right? So why do we name, why do we name names, right? Why, why is it necessary to name, name names? Name Rick Warren in this case. Now, I'm not concerned about you, all right? But I'm concerned about I'm concerned about them, right? Um, the, this community, the community that that he has influence over. Here he is embracing, embracing this false religion, embracing this cult, and there are are people in our community, in our sphere of influence, who who are who are buying his lies, right? Buying the lies of 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 Satan, right? Um, we name names to to protect the church. It's not always it's not always necessary, but sometimes it is it is necessary. And when, as a pastor, you fail to protect the church, you have people in your church embracing false religions, right? doctrines of demons. And so, from time to time, it is necessary. Just as John determined that it was necessary for the protection of the church to call out theotrophies. Let's go back to Third John. He says, um, moving on to, to verse 11. Actually, let me flip there.
He says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen God. Now listen to this verse. When I first read this passage, just before I even really started studying it, I'm like, what is this? For? I, I kinda, it almost seemed like it didn't fit, um, but, it, but it fits beautifully. Because here's what he's doing. In this verse, he's, he's exhorting us as believers to righteous behavior, right? And he's telling us to guard ourselves against right, unrighteous if you will, behavior. It's what he says. He says, do not imitate evil like Diotrephes, right? But imitate good like he's going to commend Demetrius here in a moment. This is why, and I had said this earlier in the sermon, I don't believe that Diotrephes was a believer. Um, again, John, John wasn't calling him out for some heretical views, right? Um, you know, even in those statements like with Rick Warren, uh, you know, I mean, he's endorsing the Pope, but but he wasn't saying anything necessarily heretical. I mean, by calling him a Holy Father, he wasn't, you know, deifying him. And, and so there's some things you could say, well, you know, I don't know that he was saying anything heretical. And there's a lot of things that he says that's not, not outright heretical, right? There are a lot of things that he does that is extremely inconsistent with Scripture. And let's face it, what you, what you do reflects what you believe. I mean, you can say one thing. Like you can say, I believe this. You can say that, you know what, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and that I've repented and I've turned from those sins and I've turned to Christ, and as a result, I'm saved. But then if you go out and you live like the world, you know what, your actions speak louder than your words. As far as I'm concerned, your words are hollow, right? So I think that was the case with Diotrephes. Whatever, whatever doctrinally he held to, his words were hollow, and his actions spoke louder than words, and his actions, as John describes here, were evil. And he says, don't, don't imitate evil like Diotrephes, who's not only not a pastor, but not even a believer pretending to be a pastor, right? But instead, he says, um, imitate good, right? Whoever does good is from God. And again, you know, through first, second, and third John, he's constantly giving us these challenges, right, to, to examine ourselves, right? Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen, uh, I'm sorry, has not, not seen God, right? So, again, it brings us to this point where I think we have to say, well, what does the evidence of my life um, say about my spiritual condition? Right? What do the evidences of Diotrephes' life say about his spiritual condition? Well, according to John, it said that he was lost, right? I mean, he was denying, ultimately, Christ's authority. Even if he, he had doctrine right with his words, he was... He was with his life denying Christ's authority. He was consistently, right, as an overall characteristic of his life, uh, selfish, right, self-serving, self-seeking. self self-seeking. So the actions of his life said that, you know, he's, he's probably not a believer. Regardless of what he says, he's probably not a believer, right? You can take a believer who, and again, I'm not, I'm not judging anyone's heart, but you can take a believer that, that might proclaim, I mean, when John Piper cornered Rick Warren about Reformed theology, Rick Warren gave all the right answers. But then you go and you embrace a false religion, a, a cult that denies the Christ of the Bible, and then your actions speak, speak louder than, than your words. But that should force us not just to simply go and, you know, oh, look at this person, look at that person, you know, he's done this, he said that, but what about us, right? Again, that just forces us to get to this point where we say, what, what are the actions of my life say about me spiritually? Again, we know that none of us are perfect, right? So we're not looking for perfection. And if we are, we, we have another issue to talk about. 
what do the actions of my life say about me spiritually? Um, am I a believer? Yeah. Am I a struggling believer? Maybe, maybe yeah. Right? Do I have some you know unconfessed sin in my life that I need to deal with? Maybe so. You know, again, something that that we all must I think regularly just ask ourselves and examine. You know, where where am I? What what are the act? What are these actions? saying about me, because there's probably some actions in your life. I know there's some actions in my life, right? Not the overall maybe characteristic of my life, but nonetheless some actions in my life that don't quite square up, right, with, with what I believe. So maybe, maybe there's some house cleaning that needs to be done, right? Okay, and so then he gives this commendation. We're going to end with this. He says, Demetrius, so I love this. We've got this, this compare, contrast kind of thing. We've got Diotrephes over here, and we've got Demetrius over here. We know nothing about him other than the fact that Demetrius, verse 12, has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. So here's what we know about Demetrius. Well, he had a good testimony with the church, right? And he was committed to the truth. And John was even testifying to the fact that Demetrius was committed to the truth and that the overall character, characteristic sorry, of his life right, was one that sought to glorify God walking in, in the truth. So in verse 11, John's point in praising Demetrius wasn't for his benefit, wasn't for Demetrius's benefit at all. It actually had nothing to do with, with Demetrius, right? But he was praising Demetrius for the benefit of other believers that they might imitate his, Demetrius's behavior as Demetrius does what? Imitates, imitates Christ. This is why we should praise or commend other believers, not, not for them. Listen, if, if, I thought, if I thought commending you in front of the church would give you a big head, I wouldn't use your name. Or that, that, that if it would somehow potentially even compromise, you know, maybe, even, maybe even just create a temptation for you to, to, to get a big head, right? But yet, yet truly something commendable, I wouldn't use your name. I might say, you know what, there's, there's, there's a man in this church, or there's a, a lady in this church, and I just want to tell you that I'm, I'm absolutely just, um, I'm touched by this. And we see their faithfulness, and we see this, and we see that. Again, the point isn't them, the point's Christ. And the encouragement isn't them, but it's to encourage the church to maybe emulate uh, that behavior, right, as that individual follows, follows Christ. That's why he doesn't spend a lot of even time on Demetrius, right? Anyway, let's, let's pray. Um, Father, we love you and we thank you um, for, for your word. Uh, we thank you for just revealing yourself to us and your truths to us through your word, Lord. Um, thank you for what you do. Um, we ask that you would continue to sanctify us, um, through your word, that we would just consider consider what we what we heard today, what we talked about, Lord. That we would we would not be like Diotrephes, but that we would be like Demetrius, Lord. We understand that from 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 time to time, it is necessary to name names, um, and it's necessary to do so um, when we're dealing with garbage, uh, when we're dealing with false doctrine and false teachings, when we're dealing with antichrists, uh, those who would who would seek to to harm the church that it's necessary to call them out for your glory and for, for the protection of, of the body. I pray that when we do that, that we would do it with, with love and mercy and, and grace. 
in a way that honors you and glorifies you and keeps us from sin. I also pray, Lord, that we would recognize those who, who are living right and, and, and following you, not for, their, not for their good or to inflate their ego, but, but to the encouragement of the church. And I, and I know from time to time we do that, usually with people that have, that have already gone to glory. But we bring those examples up, not, not to toot their horns, but, but to encourage one another and to praise you for what you have done in and through their lives and, and ask that you would do the same in and through, through our lives. Jesus, we, we do love you. Um, and we thank you just for your, your incredible love for us how you how you presently manifest that love that love for us I pray that our love for you would grow and that it would be evident in our lives as as we continue to, to turn from sin and in that I ask that you keep us from sin but as we continue to turn from sin and and turn to righteousness Jesus we do love you and we we praise you and we ask these things again um, ultimately for your sake